Oh, hello. I didn't see you there. Welcome to Spooky You. Hope you do enjoy yourself. We're going to be having such a lovely time. It will be to die for. I'm fucking done with you. <laughs> <laughs> that was so funny. Yeah, so this this little asshole says to me, hey, I think I have a good intro. Uh, and I'm like, all right, go for it, man. And this is what you do. Bra brava, JP. Brava, Vissimo. I don't know what I'm saying. Grazie. Hey, everybody. How's it going? We are Spooky You. That's JP. And who are you? <laughs> yeah, that's what I thought. I thought I'd throw it down at you there. So that's JP. I'm Allie. We are here to talk all things spooky, scary, macabre, dark history, true crime. If it's something that involves early 1920s straitjackets, big cushy cells, and someone screaming madness and bloody murder, and also quite possibly a vampire too, and also quite possibly somebody acting very sane and talking about killing someone as easily as they kill flies in their collection. At least I'll talk about that. Uh, no, I'd, I'd talk about that too. Yeah, I'd say that's, that's pretty on brand. Courtesy of Dracula for that one. Yeah, no, you were going Dracula, but then also like American Horror Story. Like you were bringing a couple things in there. So I was I was appreciative. Oh, no, that was all straight Dracula. I've never watched American Horror Story. Yeah, that's not a show that I want to watch with you. I'll be honest. I want you to watch it, but there's certain seasons that I don't want to watch with you. I'm glad that we have this boundary because I think I know the reasons why. And I, I appreciate you keeping that. Like the apocalypse season, great season. I'd watch that with you in a heartbeat. That's a really good one. It's it's like a movie. And Murder House is pretty good too. Hotel, fantastic season. Wouldn't watch it with you. Uh, it's on Hulu. And I think some of it's on Netflix. So uh, go watch it. Are you talking to me or the audience? Yeah, I'm talking. I'm ta well, I'm talking to everybody. Go watch it. Don't watch it with children. Seriously, do not watch it with children. Yes. Also, please, everyone, stop watching Squid Game or letting your children watch Squid Game. Why do you think that's a good idea? This sounds like a problem that you have run into. Listen, wait. You know, do you know what happened last fall when Squid Game came out and became super popular? Well, yeah. I mean, everybody watched it. Do you know what became very popular in the schools? Um, uh, no, no. Red light, green light. Stop. JP, no. Do not tell me that third graders just happen to start really wanting to play that game right as Squid Game comes out that hasn't been played on playgrounds since we were kids. I was going to say, I don't recall the last time I can tell you that I know we played Red Light, Green Light was, remember back when we went to church when we were Catholics? It's this, the church in Lancaster that we went to when our parents would volunteer for the fish fries. And there were those long rooms on either side of the gathering space. And we would play in like the one room that they opened it up the whole way. That's where we play red light, green light. So that's the, and that was pre 2000. So we're in the nineties here, peeps. Please, please just everybody watch what your kids are watching on Netflix and make sure you proof. It, it's not no just uh, mm. so let's dive in to what we're talking about this week here before jp blows a gasket here it's a close so picture this jp you're driving through the wonderful wilderness of west virginia 
you happen upon a beautiful Gothic style building. You're probably thinking, hey, that's a nice building. Maybe I should get out and take a look around. You start walking around the grounds and you get an eerie feeling. Is something watching you from the window? Why does it sound like someone is following you? You start to get an uneasy feeling in your stomach, like you need to leave right now. But why would a building be making you feel this way? What kind of dark history does it have? You get back in your car, you pull out your phone, location on. Where am I? Oh no. You're at the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Dun, dun, dun. So yeah, we are talking about the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. I actually have a friend who who visited the Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, and she said it was extremely creepy. And she may or may not have caught a ghost on camera. Dun, dun, dun. Well, we'll talk about that a little bit, because you know how you didn't want me to blow a gasket earlier on about Squid Games? Yeah. That whole associating asylums with haunting and horror is also going to make me want to blow a gasket. Okay, well, why don't you explain to us why? Okay, so, much like everything that I do, we're going to start way back at the very, very beginning of all of this, because... Let's start at the very beginning. It's a very good place to start. But I, I don't know that one. JP, that's from The Sound of Music. Christ, I... That's Doe a deer or a female deer, Ray a drop of golden sun, me a name a car. Oh, come on, man. Yes, I know, I know. Listen, the last time I watched that, I was recovering from my COVID booster, and I was like, I was out. Okay, to be fair, that is a great movie to put on when you are not feeling super well. Like, it's, it's a nice, calm movie to... I might put that on today, actually. But anyway, we're not here to feel good. No, we're not here to feel good. That's why you're listening to this podcast. You're masochistic. That's, we're done with this. So starting from the history of asylums, before we get into the ghost and spooky ghouls of Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum, from this point out, I'm just going to call Tala. Tala. We have to talk about another scary subject, obtaining government funding. Yeah, that's JP. Try not to scare everybody here. That's the scariest thing we've talked about. Right? Because we're going to start even further than that. Oh, no. My, I must have been delirious when I started my notes here. <laughs> Did you write them when you were recovering from your COVID booster? Probably. Well, obviously, <laughs> the treatment of psychological issues dates back centuries. But for timing's sake, we're going to start at the medieval era. Back then, there wasn't really a standard for treating those suffering from severe mental illness. Yeah, when you said treatment, I was going to say in lack thereof, because there was no treatment. Continue. Well, you'll be surprised. All were dealt on the local level, and placement and treatment varied widely from peaceful monasteries to special jail cells, supposedly even built in special towers in parts of modern-day Germany, called Fool's Towers. Now, JP. In addition to the fact that mental health was not well understood 
and cases were usually chalked up to demonic or satanic possession. One notable exception, however, though, was the Al-Fustat Hospital established in 872 in Cairo. Al-Fustat was a part of a growing medical field in the Islamic world, complete with a pharmacy, emergency medical facilities, and a recovery ward. And it was also the first hospital to be funded by donations, allowing it to offer its services at little cost to patients. Okay, well, that's that's good. That's promising. I know. It's like they figured out how to make affordable health care centuries ago. Yeah, they just seem to have forgotten. Jackasses? Seriously? Okay, I'm sorry. That, yeah, this one's going to make me really have a fit. When don't we have a fit? Let's think about that. That's fair. The remarkable thing was that it was a pioneer in treatment of mentally ill through positive reinforcement and creating relaxing environments. Wow, that's really nice. Yeah, so it's actually really cool to see that there was already this acknowledgement and understanding of positive reinforcement even that far back. Because we usually only look at European history when it comes to these things. And we very much often forget that, hey, there was also the Islamic world. There was also East Asia. And they were actually doing really well in this time. That's really nice that they... They did that and it worked for them, you know, and, and I really wish that the rest of the world would have adopted it. And then maybe we could have had just a better health system, mental health system in general. However, in Europe, the manner of dealing with those suffering from psychological issues was also handled, like I said, by family and local communities, and they suffered. No, that, that one we know about. As time went on in the 18th and 19th century, Private hospitals and almhouses, aka poorhouses, were the primary existing form of care for those who would qualify for asylum residency or those with mental issues. However, almhouses were less care facilities and more of places to send people who didn't function in normal society. Oh god. They had been around since the start of the colonial times, and they took Everyone, from petty criminals to senile to epileptics, all mental disabilities, orphans, and even tuberculosis patients. Oh, good. This is, this is great. This is great. Almost all the staff were not trained in any way to care for the wide range of issues that they saw. No, why would they be? Poorhouses were expected to fund themselves through selling agricultural goods, Interesting fact, these homes would exist until the 1950s, slowly being phased out as new specialized facilities and care centers were established. By the 1930s, they primarily served as state homes for the elderly until this was later phased out as medical funding made state houses unnecessary because... You're going to see this as a recurring thing in this episode where... A lot of times they'll establish these facilities and then nobody wants to foot the bill because people are dicks. That really should be what our podcast is called. People are dicks. <laughs> I think I'm pretty sure there's like five podcasts about that. Yeah. <laughs> Actually, there's a great one on um, Time Ghost Army. They have the alphabet of dicks. And it's, <laughs> <laughs> it's not what you think. It's A to Z of historical dicks. Yeah, no, that's exactly what I thought it was. Oh, okay. Yeah, no, that's 
Hey, after the Count Dante gorilla fighter incident, I just had to make sure I clarified. No, no, that my mind went exactly to, all right, Adolf Hitler, number one. <laughs> and let me guess, hold on, hold on, let me guess. They're all men. No, there was, uh, oh, I guess, well, no, Brutica wouldn't be a dick. There was um, one woman in Ukraine who, there was also, uh, oh, we talked about the one vampire lady on the last season. Well, there was Lalaurie. Yeah, Lalaurie. Yeah, she was a dick. There, there, there's a lot of dicks. I feel bad. Somebody's probably shouting into their phone right now, knowing somebody. Yeah. And I'm sorry. I'm, I'm glad you know. Like Putin. <laughs> but the majority were men. We're just gonna throw that out there. Yes. By the turn of the 19th century, America began to adopt European approaches for the treatment of mentally insane that were used in Europe at the time. Already a mistake. Much like I had mentioned in the Al-Fusat Hospital, now th this is different. I should clarify by the 19th century, they were actually starting to create specialized facilities. Okay, so we're, we're doing a little bit better at this point. All right. Again, I'm really glossing over some general history because th there's a lot to get through. No, that's fair. That's fair. The system was based on kindness and a reward instead of harsh treatment. The idea was, if efforts were made to appeal to individuals' rational side, they could eventually lead to curing individuals. Oh, yikes. These facilities were meant to be secluded, calm environments with plenty of open space and sunlight, and this is why so many insane asylums in America are in wooded rural areas. Okay. The first one was established in 1814 by the Philadelphia Quaker community, and over the next 40 years, asylums would be established by Pennsylvania, New York, and Boston hospitals. Now, I should also clarify the, quote, curing. You have to understand that this was before mental illnesses were very well understood, and obviously the goal of doctors is to, quote, cure. And they didn't know that these weren't things that you could really cure, and we actually have a great episode coming up here where we'll talk about the lobotomy and yeah, I can't wait for you to talk about that one. Yeah, I, it's it's really interesting actually. Oh, I'm sure it's interesting. I still, I that's something I can't stomach. So that's going to be a really great episode for me. <laughs> Steal your belly, Allie, because it's going to be it's going to be a yoosh. <laughs> now I do want to bring attention to one individual by the name of Dorothea Dix. Born in 1802, Dorothea played a pivotal role in the adoption of European-style treatment for the mentally ill and advancing the role of women in nursing. Yes! Dorothea overcame a lot in her life between abusive parents and being an ill child. She helped establish facilities for the mentally ill in New Jersey, North Carolina, and Illinois, where she was instrumental in drafting and advocating for a bill to establish state-run facilities with values of modesty, chastity, and delicacy. She helped create the benefit of the Indigent Insane Bill in Congress. This bill would have provided to over or would have provided over twelve million acres of federal land set aside to help mentally ill, ten million for construction, and the other two or no, ten million acres would be for construction and the other $2 million would be sold off for funding. However, President Polk vetoed the bill, claiming it was the responsibility of the states, not the federal government. 
And welcome to the Alphabet of Dicks, President Polk. Well, here's also the thing to keep in mind. This was pre-Civil War, and Polk was one of, oh, I think, yeah, he was probably in that early Founding Fathers where the mentality truly was almost more like uh, the United States were the European Union, where the state was the most important thing. Yeah, no, no, I understand that. I'm just adding commentary for the sake of commentary. No, it's a very different view of the United States back then as we have today, where something like that would be very normal. But back then, even just the slightest overstep of federal power over the states was like a big no-no. Okay. And last thing I have on her is that she also served as superintendent nurse for the Union Army. Now, moving forward, I'm going to jump ahead to what I have called Crook Bride's Got a Plan. And this is going to bring us into the asylum that we currently know today and that we're here to talk about. I promise we're getting to it. Just got to let JP talk. He's got a big head. Let him go. (laughs) Well, a new idea of treating the mentally ill was entering America, a new doctor was entering the scene who would change the face of mental illness treatment for this next century to come, almost quite literally. Dr. Thomas Kirkbride was born in 1803 in rural Pennsylvania. Thomas attended the University of Pennsylvania and in 1840 became the first superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane. He was also a founder of the American Institution for the Insane a forerunner to the American Psychiatric Association. But his biggest impact on the field of psychological treatment was the Kirkbride plan. The impact of this plan would be the literal blueprint for how insane asylums would be run. Oh, good. No, no, no. It's a, it's a, just, just follow along now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, I, I tried to put in some gems here to make us all feel good. Trust the process. Trust the process. Gotcha. Don't trust me, though. I'm insane. I don't trust you. That's why I said, oh, good, the way I did. In it, Crookbride recommends asylums should be built in tiered wards stretching out from a central administrative building. Think of bat wings, which actually kind of makes sense when you think about Batman. Batman. The wings would be separated by gender, with the most severe patients furthest from the administration building on the lowest levels, and the least severe on the upper floors closest to the central admin building. The linear floor plan allowed every patient to have access to natural light, believing that calm, natural environments were the best to help cure those suffering. This was part of a moral therapy that Kirkbride and other doctors were embracing from Europe. The idea was to create positive, relaxing environments for patients, blah, 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 Rook rewarding good behaviors that will eventually cure patients, return them as functioning members of society. So yeah, we all know how well that goes out. But again, this was the best that this was the cutting edge of medical practice at the time. That's what they had at the time. This was a far cry from the abandonment and suffering of poor houses and jails that had been the norm for centuries. In addition, Kirkbride capped the maximum number of patients in his facilities at 250. This was meant to keep a staff-to-patient ratio at a healthy number for both the patients and the staff. As a superintendent of the Pennsylvania Hospital for the Insane, Kirkbride knew that caring for patients could be mentally, emotionally, and physically draining for the staff. 
As a result, he advocated for a liberal pay for all staff due to the training required and to ensure they could comfortably live on their salaries. Wow, what a novel thought. Also, yes, he wanted well-trained staff. Now, this sounds all well and good, but how did this idyllic notion of curing mentally ill through kindness and love go oh so very wrong? Because, you know, that's not how we know insane asylums today. No, though, that's like, that actually sounds like it could work. But now we're talking about it, so something went wrong. Yeah, if, if it shows up on here, something is horribly, horribly wrong. I just feel like somewhere someone's like having a bad day, like, we're going to get through it. And then in their mind, they get a vision of us. Hello, welcome to Spooky You. Oh, fuck. Shit. <laughs> we're screwed, guys. <laughs> Truth be told, it wasn't really Kirkbride's fault. While initially there was a large push in the early 19th century for more state-funded mental health facilities, Thank you, Dorothea Dix. Naturally, one of the main selling points for the Kirkbride plan was to cure patients with mental issues. And as we know today, simply giving sunlight and a nice environment isn't enough. And as a result, superintendents began to seek other methods. And by the 20th century, many found no difference on the structure or location of asylums. Another was economics. You see, many state officials didn't exactly want to dump a lot of funding into these insane asylum facilities and thus rarely increased funding. In fact, between the Great Depression and World War II, many asylums received budget cuts. This was on top of many state legislatures reclassifying senile elderly as a mental condition and thus were sent to asylums. This caused exponential growth in many asylum populations stretching staff and resources to their limits with patients the facility was not designed to handle. Jeez, oh man. It wasn't really the... I know we sometimes have that whole, like, dubious doctor and the nurse ratchet, but really, these staff and facilities were being pushed and asked to do so much that they were not designed for. They went in with good intentions and then just misunderstanding not knowing all of that took over and they were bombarded and overrun and it, it became too much by the turn of the 20th century a new movement had also come about called the mental hygiene movement this developed around the 20th century focused on being proactive to reduce the outside forces that led to mental health issues such as alcohol and living conditions Furthermore, many worked to identify potential mental diseases in children and began managing them earlier on. This meant more patients for mental health were being treated in general hospitals rather than asylums. This was also a time when doctors were beginning to experiment with new medical practices and drug treatments to help mental patients with mental issues. And yes, some of these included shock therapy and the lobotomy, but those are stories for another day. Many of these treatments allowed patients to live more normal lives, no longer needing the long-term residency at these facilities. Today, many suffering from mental illness are treated through a web of services, mostly outpatient and psychiatric wards in general hospitals, with only a few psychiatric hospitals still in operation today. Okay, so that's a 
rough, quick history of the mental health field, <laughs> which seemed long, but honestly, that was as short as I could make it within reason. That's fair. I mean, those are all things you have to cover whenever we're going to dive into why this place is so haunted. Yep. So on that note, let's finally get some ghosts in here. Allie, take it away. <laughs> so let's talk about the actual Trans-Allegheny Lunatic Asylum. Why is it considered to be so haunted? Well, as JP said, you know, there was a time where the hospitals and the asylums became overcrowded. So at one point, there was over 2,600 patients overcrowding the hospital. And just as a reminder, they were only supposed to have 250. Correct. And of course, when you have 2,600 patients in a space that's only supposed to hold 200, you're going to have some ghosts running through these halls. So tales of haunting began even while the asylum was still open. Sounds of restless souls became commonplace to the workers and patients. Some workers even quit after a few days because they heard unexplainable noises, such as squeaky wheels of gurneys rolling down the tiled hall. But there were no gurneys in sight. Over 2,000 people are buried in the cemetery on the grounds. There are reports of spirits of Civil War era ghosts children, ex-patients, and staff. There are some truly evil spirits that walk the halls as well. It's said that murderers, rapists, and other violent offenders dwell in the building, along with other patients who were admitted for various mental illnesses or substance abuses. Covering sort of your quote-unquote basic hauntings, they include seeing ghostly figures and hearing strange noises. There's actually uh, one visitor who claimed a ghost followed her home and still haunts her to this day. Legit fear of mine, but I still want to go ghost hunting. And there have been reports of balls of white light moving down the hallways and figures roaming the halls dressed in white. So that's kind of covering as a whole. All right. This is just like your standard... All that standard normal spookiness that people tell you actually happened in places. Yes. Now we're going to go floor by floor. So there are, there's kind of like certain floors that are more haunted than other floors. The first floor was the Civil War wing. A former patient named Ruth is said to roam the floor. Though people don't know why, it is said that Ruth hated men. Like, okay, you know, same sometimes, same. And had been known to throw things at them. So uh, I'm kind of here for Ruth. I don't know about you. I'm, I'm here for Ruth. I'm not here because I know how your strategy for finding her would be if we ever did go ghost hunting. I just pushed you down the hall. So no, thank you. <laughs> Today it said her spirit uh, wanders the halls where people have said that they have been pushed up against walls and have heard whistle sounds emanating from the hallways. God, now I'm just thinking Negan from The Walking Dead. Maybe. I don't know. I didn't watch The Walking Dead. I don't like that. I don't I don't like that. So the second floor, Ward 2, had a few violent offense occur. In one room, a man was stabbed 17 times by another patient. 
I would call that a violent event. In another room, two patients, before I say this, I actually meant to say this a little bit earlier, um, trigger warning for some of the things that are mentioned. In oh, this- really? You're only now mentioning the trigger warning. Yeah, I kind of forgot. I'm so sorry. But um, this is going to mention suicide. In another room, two patients completed suicide by hanging themselves from curtain rods. In this ward, people tend to see shadow figures, generally very, very negative beings. And on one occasion, uh, an EVP, I think that's what they're called. I had to think about that for a second, of someone saying, get out, was captured. Ellie? Yes. Where did you hear this EVP? Well, I didn't hear. I'm just reporting that somebody said. What, What was your source? The internet. You know, everything's true on the internet. Yes, but what what specifically? I have a I have a slight inkling and fear of JP. You, did I, you get this from Ghost Adventures? No, no, no. Did not get this from Ghost Adventures. Okay, I was trying to check off my bingo card for Zach Bagan's reference on the podcast. Not in this episode. Well, too late. I already did it. I believe they went, but I don't think the episode is available to watch. The third floor is home to a horrific tale. Two patients tried to hang another patient, but when he wouldn't die, they bludgeoned him to death. The ghost of the murdered man is said to continue to haunt the room in which he was killed. I I can understand being a little pissed about that. Yes, that would be upsetting. Another ghost named Big Jim is also said to hang out on the floor along with a ghostly nurse named Elizabeth. On this floor, you will find doors opening and closing on their own, quick glimpses of apparitions, shadow figures, and a number of strange phenomena captured on EVPs. So these are reports from people who have gone and ghost hunted there. Not uh, If it was Ghost Adventures, I would say it was Ghost Adventures. So just remember that for future reference there. JP. Okay, okay, fine, fine, fine. <laughs> like, okay. Fourth floor! In Ward R, there is a little ghost child named Lily. Lily sits patiently in a room filled with toys, waiting for someone to play with her. She wears a white dress and is said to be about nine years old. Lily likes to play games with visitors and staff as toys move around on their own. And a fucking music box turns on by itself. Of course. No, that like, as I write this section. Why is there always a music box? I hate this. I hate this so much. I hate this. You know my rule about children. You know it. I know. Yes. If you can't see them, you run. Yes. If you cannot see a child, but you can hear a child, get the fuck out. Yeah. You know, that's a little problematic for me. You you work in a school that's different. Okay. Is it? They're sneaky little bastards. That's true. You know what? That's true. I, lo- I love them dearly, but they are crafty. <laughs> That's true. So the legend of Lily is actually a very sad one. It's said that she spent all or most of her short life inside the walls of the asylum. One story says she was dropped off by her parents. Another story says she was born there to a committed mother, but she died of pneumonia at age nine and has never truly left her only home. Now, Lily isn't the only ghost on the fourth floor. While she is a friendly and sweet ghost, there is another darker, more serious apparition that haunts those halls. Enter a large black mass-like object called the Creeper. 
that crawls along the floor? Immediately no. Okay, immediately no. You're on the fourth. Wait a minute. Yes. Wasn't this thing already in Waverly Hills? You think there's more than one creeper? I, I mean, you know, I thought, like, that wouldn't be that many. There's a lot of very large mass objects that crawl along the floor, apparently. Apparently they like their ariums. Yeah. And the fourth floor contains another ghost named Jacob, who casually strolls the halls. On this floor, unearthly sounds can be heard, such as screams coming from inside the electroshock room, banging, mysterious slamming doors. <laughs> this this one might be the worst. Okay, ready? Throaty moans. I just, I hate that. I hate that so much. I'm getting like a mix of gargling and Tibetan throat singing. That's kind of what I was thinking too. Ominous breathing and hysterical laughter coming from empty rooms. So like you're kind of lulled into a false sense of security whenever you meet Lily. Okay, so hey, here's Lily. She's a sweet kid. Like we and play with her, make the afterlife a little bit better. And then you turn the corner and then the fucking music box turns on by itself. You turn another corner and there's the fucking creeper. You turn another corner and then there's Jacob who's just hanging out not really doing anything and all this is going on and you're hearing throaty moans and hysterical laughing. So yeah, just a lot of this is just a hard pass for me, but I still am curious. So and curious. a dude named big Jim. Oh yeah. I can't forget about big Jim. So got a last story here about the kitchen, the kitchen, not super, super haunted, but a security guard did experience something in the building. It was nighttime. The security guard was walking alone around the building at night, he was near the kitchen when he felt it. The feeling where the hair stands up on the back of your neck. Someone or something was watching him. It was that moment of dread. The feeling we all know. There is an intensively negative spirit near. He then saw the movement. What was that behind him? Whew. Oh, okay. It's just the kitchen. But that's when he saw it. A grayish woman standing in an opening. The guard couldn't see her eyes, but he knew she was staring at him intensely. Then, as quickly as her spirit descended, she vanished. And he booked it right out of there. I mean, okay, I guess fair, but at the same time, dude, what were you expecting? You signed up to be a security guard at a place that does haunted tours. Okay, but he could be a skeptic. Some people are truly skeptics, and that's fine. That's their own belief. That's their own opinion. But he probably wasn't expecting to see that. I mean, honestly, I probably would have just been like, oh, okay, yeah, what, whatever. You'd be freaked out. If you actually saw something that you couldn't explain scientifically, I don't think it would sit well with you. I know. And I'm mostly saying that because I'd be like, oh, this is just a very creepy, unsettling place. But, you know, it's just an abandoned asylum. But that, hey, that covers the ghosts. Okay, awesome. Because I'm looking at my notes here and I totally forgot to hit the general actual history of the building itself. <laughs> Of course you did. Well, hey, we talked about the spooky things, so tell us about the building that they haunt. 
Okay, so doing this in reverse order, located in the town of Weston, West Virginia, which I'm now realizing we forgot to mention where it even is. We didn't even mention that. This is a professional podcast. Yep. <laughs> the asylum sits along the West Forks River. According to the asylum's website, it was constructed between 1858 and 1881 and was the second largest hand-cut stone masonry building constructed Second only to the Kremlin. Oh, interesting. Huh. Okay. Yeah. Would not have expected that connection there. But yeah, no, no. In fact, the construction was completed. The asylum was already seeing some historical action. So you mentioned the Civil War. And that's because if you noticed about the timestamp, its construction took place right in the middle of the Civil War. <laughs> there it is. Now, a little bit of fun history in the area. Colonel Eurystice Bernard Tyler marched his Ohio regiment 25 miles in the middle of the night, arriving in Weston at 5 a.m. And this was right at the beginning of the outbreak of the Civil War in 1861. And his goal was to take the $30,000 in gold from the town bank, a little over half a million in today's money, to prevent it from being used by the rebellion. The bank owner initially refused but then remembered that the colonel had a regiment of soldiers and promptly handed over the key. Yeah, that does tend to be a little more persuasive. I'm just picturing one of those things. Hand over the key! No! Soldiers ready! Wait, I have friends! The land and only completed wing of the asylum at the time was converted to a military camp by the Union. During the war, the town would change hands several times being raided by Confederate and Union soldiers. A Confederate raid in 1864 saw another $5,000 robbed from the bank, as well as clothes and other material meant for the asylum were seized. Despite the war, the opening of the asylum gave the town its primary economic resource for the next 130 years, saving it from post-war depression. So... Yeah, that's the bit that should have been at the beginning, but it's right there now. That's all right. That's Hey, you know what, JP? You still got it in there. You did a great job. I appreciate it. I know. When you mentioned Civil War, I was thinking in my head, I'm like, I had something about a colonel and some money. And I'm like, <laughs> You're just oh. sitting there going, oh, shit. <laughs> yeah, whoops. So we talked about a lot of the ghosts and asylums, and it's no surprise that today insane asylums are like the primary backdrop to a lot of horror setting there is an entire season of american horror story called asylum i mean hell even superheroes with dc batman gets into insane asylums totally because i've seen the movie well just any like just batman in general arkham asylum is a huge part of it okay yeah, i don't remember but this brings up an interesting question and that is how exactly did these medical facilities that were set up by great people such as Dorothea and Thomas Kirkbride turn into living horror shows? That's a great question. We got into a little bit of it about the funding and the overcrowding, but where did it really get into the pop culture? And that's what we're going to get into in this last bit. Some of it may have started in the 19th century. You see, these public asylums relied on taxpayer money to operate, and as I discussed earlier on, not many officials were keen on putting a lot of that money into the facilities. And in order to make up the operating costs, 
superintendents would seek public donations by allowing tours of their facilities. Wait, while people were still in there? Yeah. Oh, that's fucked. Well, one of the things you have to remember is that when these buildings were constructed, they were based off of the Gothic-style architecture, so they were very interesting looking as well they're beautiful buildings and they had beautiful landscaped gardens for the patients and also yes they sometimes the patients themselves were part of the attraction as a result during the time they became popular tourist destinations oh don't like that i don't like that yeah while it certainly seems unethical this did bring in the vital funding that the asylums needed to keep operating a lot of it changed, though, for the asylums and how people viewed them in 1842 with the publishing of Elizabeth Stone's memoir, A Sketch of the Life of Elizabeth T. Stone. Okay. And her persecutions. I don't know what it is about the, 18, about the 19th century, but all the books just had very long titles. Well, that and a lot of persecutions of females. Yeah. Right, keep going. Another similar novel was published in 1851 by Isaac Hunt describing the practices of an institution in Maine, equating the treatment of patients to the Spanish Inquisition and the Bastille. Oh. In Elizabeth's story of being tricked into McLean Asylum in Boston after her family had concerns about her religious conversation or about her religious conversion, she described a horrific establishment filled with barbaric staff, treatments that bordered on torture, at its head, a superintendent who acted more like nobility than a healer. In addition to these scandals by Elizabeth and Isaac, many Americans were uneasy about the idea of asylums. These institutions often stripped almost all freedoms from their patients. And having such an impressive institution that was state-run made a lot of freedom-loving Americans... uncomfortable. So... Much like today, it was pop culture that really destroyed the reputations of asylums. Some examples were Edgar Allan Poe's The System of Dr. Tarr and Professor Feather, and Mary Wollencroft's Maria. Poe in particular used the asylum as a backdrop for a commentary on the reformist movement spreading across America at the time. Many more authors in the 19th century ran with these ideas, creating dark, twisted versions of asylums. Even when not the primary focus, asylums were rarely painted in good light. In Bram Stoker's Dracula, asylum patients are portrayed as violent with no regard to human life. And also serving Dracula. Yeah, there's Dracula too. When you think about this, these scandals and the creative liberties that a lot of authors were taking at the time really began to paint what was, for most Americans, their only picture and understanding of these facilities that they were already primed not to like. And it's really sad because the way that they were supposed to function and supposed to run, it was set up to be very helpful and to be actually good facilities. And then it just, it took a turn. It took a turn with, you know, thanks to the government shocker and took a turn thanks to pop culture. And if you really think about it, I know they talk a lot about these treatments being barbaric and harsh, but I mean, you could also say maybe the same thing about, say, chemotherapy today. If we get to a point where we get really good at treating cancers and we look back at the idea that doctors were basically irradiating people to the point of near death. Yeah. 
that would seem pretty barbaric, but that's the most effective thing we have at the time. And it's it's what you learn at the time. And I mean, people are learning things continuously as the world turns. So it's it's doing the best you can with the knowledge you have. Exactly. As America moved into the 20th century, asylums began to utilize different drugs and treatment approaches. All these were in the hope of finding cures for patients to help reduce the overwhelming populations that they were fighting. But as funding dwindled, the number of patients exploded. Corners began to be cut and facilities could not afford to be as picky about staff. It also didn't help that the stigma of mental health still existed and that these individuals were meant for psychopaths and deranged maniacs, rather than how we think of mental health today as just a common issue and problem that everyone faces in different levels. This really got worse with the popularity of the 1978 John Carpenter's Halloween. Oh, of course. <laughs> this introduced the world to Michael Myers, villain slash monster who has escaped an asylum after murdering his sister and then proceeded to kill a whole bunch of teens. Have you seen the movie? I have, actually. It's, it's, it's good. good. It's a good yeah, movie. Yeah, it's, it's a but... good movie. Yeah, so it was things like that that people equated like, oh, Michael Myers is in a sane asylum. If I go to an asylum, I must. they must be like Michael Myers. And it's like, no, that's not the case. That's literally a character created for a story. But of course, because it became so popular. And this only got worse in the late 20th century with asylums being used in all kinds of movies and shows from American Horror Story, Shutter Island, Clockwork yeah. Orange, where you again see asylums being used as that state institution to enforce will and power over people. Joker, and just about any slasher, thriller, play a horror action, you you name it. There's probably been one, obviously, I'm pretty sure Supernatural, yeah, Supernatural's had a bunch of asylum ones. So in addition, with many asylum facilities left abandoned, many entrepreneurs have utilized these horrific pasts and misunderstandings of these facilities in order to create haunted houses to the point where an entire generation has forgotten their original purpose. And the people, such as Dorothea Dix and Thomas Kirkbride, who once envisioned hopeful and helpful healing facilities. Now it's tourism. And yeah, that's why I love doing this is because I don't think many people would realize and hopefully can bring back that history and understanding that these truly were places with good intentions. And if you go and actually tour these facilities, they, you know, they talk about this in the history and you're able to experience it, but not everybody is able to go and to visit these stories or, or to visit these places. And not everybody has access to these. So it's, you know, podcast documentaries, the website itself, you know, just doing research and understanding that there is so much more to these places than ghost stories, uh, pop culture ideologies, and, you know, just what we have in our own heads based on society. Yep. Mental health and mental issues are perfectly natural, perfectly normal. Yeah. And stop thinking that Michael Myers is the end all be all. Yeah, but Michael Myers is a pretty cool character. He is a cool character, but I do I do enjoy Halloween. That's a good that's a good movie. I could never understand though what they were going with because they're like, oh, he escaped from an insane asylum, but at the same time, he has the ability to pick somebody up with one hand, stab them 
through their stomach and into a door and then be able to prop them up on it. And then he gets shot six times and then falls off a second story window and then gets away like he's a zombie. And I'm like, what, what, what are we saying here? Was he actually ever alive? Was he undead? What? I'm I feel like it. there's probably more that comes out in the other movies. I haven't watched them yet, but I need to. But my favorite part of that whole movie, the first one, because obviously that's the only one we're talking about, is the fact that for the entire probably first quarter of the movie, he's just poking out of bushes. He's just like, hey, I see you. You're over there. How's it going? Oh, I'm going to go back in now. Oh, hey, how's it going? I see you over there. And then I'm going to go away now. Like, it's just just that, like, poking behind bushes or behind doors. Like, I loved it. I was like, this is great. This is just great. I actually also didn't realize this, but do you know what the the origins of the iconic Michael Myers mask is? Oh, it's it's a it's a president mask, isn't it? Star Trek. It was. Um, oh, James, yeah. Yeah. It was uh, James Tiber James T. Kirk. Yes. Yes. Oh, yeah, I was Captain about Kirk. to look it up. Yeah. Captain Kirk mask. Why was I thinking it was like Nixon or something? Because Nixon masks are perfectly good for murderers as well. That's very true. That's very, very true. There's, there's been plenty of murderers who've been like in TV shows that make fun of the Michael Myers and they're wearing a Nixon mask. That's funny. Well, Hey, that's it, man. Got through everything in the wrong order, but <laughs> Hey, we're just shaking it up for you. We're just trying to make sure you guys are staying awake. I know that's what I was going for. They're going to somebody's <laughs> going to wake up halfway through, like be like, "What the hell? I thought I just started this." You're like, "That's exactly what I was doing." <laughs> totally meant to do that. Well, uh, please like and subscribe wherever you're listening to podcasts, and tell your friends about us. Seriously, have like a little party, you know, sit outside by a little campfire, and just listen to us tell scary stories because that's like that. That's a great thing to do with your friends. No, 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 no. Wait until, like, the conversation's live and buzzing, and then just in the middle go, hey, do you guys want to hear about the crippling reality of funding a medical insane asylum in America? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Just kill. Kill the buzz. Yeah, we're actually here to help you kill the vibe wherever you go. We're going to help you be social Michael Myers. Yes, that's our goal. That's 100% our goal. Well, enjoy your day, night, evening, storm. Enjoy your life. Class dismissed.